the future of computing is deviceless. You don't need a device anymore if you can interact with systems using face recognition. Hello, I'm Dave McCombs, and this is AI Transform with Ryo Katsuki. The voice you just heard was Andrew Schwabecker, CEO of Japan Computer Vision. He was talking about the brave new present and future of facial recognition. Andrew is our very special guest for this episode, and we'll share his insights with Ryo later in the show. But first, here's AI Transform co-producer Douglas Kirkpatrick with the news. A team of Japanese researchers is exploring new ways to use AI to read people's minds. The goal is to measure basic sentiment, such as whether someone is experiencing enjoyment. The research shows that measuring human biological signals yields more accurate assessments of sentiment than techniques based on analyzing voice and facial expression. The group published a study in late March that added physiological signals, such as heart rate, posture, and skin potential, to measure enjoyment experienced by users during a conversation. Analyzing those signals gave a more accurate prediction of human sentiment than similar analysis of facial expression and voice. The finding suggests it will be possible to develop emotionally intelligent AI that can adjust responses based on measuring users' psychological state with greater accuracy and consistency than unassisted humans can achieve. One of the lead researchers, Associate Professor Shogo Okada from Japan Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, says the breakthrough may resolve one of the biggest challenges for developing AI that can duplicate the human experience of empathy. Says Okada, Humans are very good at concealing their feelings. The internal emotional state of a user is not always accurately reflected by the content of the dialogue, but since it is difficult for a person to consciously control their biological signals, such as heart rate, it may be useful to use these for estimating their emotional state. This could make for an AI with sentiment estimation capabilities that are beyond human. For those who listened to the previous episode would know that we are working on this thing we call interest index. It measures through video the interest level that person is exhibiting during video conference. Now, this research confirms ours that the biometric signs are great proxies to measure rise and fall of human interest and concerns. To apply this science to business today or in the near future, we have to go further. With the current trend on issues surrounding data and privacy, it's very difficult and it's unlikely now or in any time soon that uh, our clients would accept to wear ECG probes or to be filmed with infrared cameras while discussing business. It's simply creepy. And in addition, you probably won't have access to these heavy equipments, expensive equipments too. The, the visual and audio cue is all you have to go with you know, on a video conference, uh, for example, or even in face-to-face. -face. We're using the same science that these guys have done, teaching AI, our AI with visual cues that are correlated with the biometrics proxies. And I can see a future in which ECG and other data are continuously monitored by tiny chips that are not necessarily embedded in your skin, but attached to you, could even be something as simple as a watch. But I do think the future of constant monitoring of physiological signals 
is here. Now, I think this objection that you brought up, you know, consent, right? Are customers going to consent to this? I think they will. It's going to take some time. And, and I think it's going to be a whole process that is going to key mostly on people's health. People are going to be willing to do it because they're, they're, they'll see the advantage of monitoring these things for their health. But at the same time, that, that same data could then be used in, a, in the type of matrix that you're describing that predicts sentiment as well. You're absolutely correct that that's not happening today. And for people who are developing business solutions, I think it's going to have to be very simplified compared with what these folks at the Pan Advanced Institute of Science and Technology are working on. We're working with at the University of Saitama with Professor Watanuki Research Center. There is specialized in this thing called human human interface, including those technologies that you mentioned, Dave. Ships these uh, nanotechnologies, and then and they will come, and then hopefully the, the issue around the privacy will come around as well. But it's going to be a huge battle if you if you imagine the data is an advantage, and then it's going to be data versus data. Northeastern University's Institute for Experiential Artificial Intelligence is adapting its curriculum to focus on the central role of humans using AI as a tool. Joseph E. Aoun, president of Northeastern, pointed to these and other changes across the academic landscape at a conference earlier this month held to debut the new institute. Aoun says he wants every student coming out of Northeastern to have what he calls humanics the combination of technological, data, and human literacies, a concept he championed in his book, Robot Proof, Higher Education in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Industry leaders attending the event also pointed out the necessity of combining human decision-making with artificial intelligence. Lila Snyder, chief executive officer of Bose, said the company must rely on humans to ultimately determine when its headphones should automatically activate noise cancellation. The function can then be added to the device using an algorithm to determine when those circumstances actually occur. Um, yeah, this noise cancellation topic really made me think about uh, because um, what is noise? I mean, what is noise to you isn't noise to me. You know, we... And what's noise to me now may not be noise to me tomorrow. You know, it depends on what I'm keen to listen to, what I'm trying to listen, right? I mean, there, there's, there's constantly we have multiple channels coming into our ears. It really depends on the context uh, that I'm in. If I'm playing tennis and it's the ball hitting on, on, on your side that I'm trying to listen to, Dave. Right. But if I'm off the court chatting, watching other people to play tennis, my, my, my ears are tuned to what you're saying uh, about, you know, yesterday's party. So that context, you've got you've got to eventually, you know, let the humans decide what to what to treat noise, what to treat as, as a as a relevant information. It is very easy to forget, as you point out, just how complicated and just how complex human responses to stimuli are. It goes back to the concentric AI. By, I was pointed out all very often by Stuart Russell, my professor at UC Berkeley. Our mission at Ignite's AI is to build AI-aided society.
The value of artificial intelligence solutions in the banking, financial services, and insurance market is projected to continue booming as the industry shifts towards customer-centric business models. Annual growth is forecast at 30% from this year, with revenue climbing to $140 billion by 2028, researchers at Global Market Insights estimate. One key to growth is so-called explainable AI models that let users show customers how results are derived. A banking software company called Temenos, for example, is offering applications that let credit unions and banks significantly reduce the amount of time needed to approve loans for small to medium-sized businesses and individuals. So far, the sector is dominated by some of the biggest names in tech, including Amazon Web Services, Google, Intel, Microsoft, and Oracle, giving U.S.-based companies the biggest share of the global market. Artificial intelligence governance was on the agenda in a meeting between U.S. President Joe Biden and Singapore's Prime Minister Li Shenlong. The technology was mentioned in a White House statement following the March 29th summit in the context of the U.S.-Singapore Partnership for Growth and Innovation. The U.S. and Singapore agreed to develop an interoperable ethical framework for governance of artificial intelligence. They also plan to strengthen partnerships in advanced manufacturing. More broadly, the U.S. has been seeking to cement technology alliances in Asia in an attempt to outflank China's push for wider industrial use of 5G, artificial intelligence, and the Internet of Things. The statement also mentioned plans for a business development mission to Singapore. Thanks, Douglas. Here's Rio with this episode's conversation. Our very special guest today is Andrew Schrabecker, CEO of Japan Computer Vision. Andrew is based in Tokyo, where he has led the company. Before that, he led the cloud and cyber strategy unit under business development at SoftBank. He also led corporate investment and joint venture activities at SoftBank Telecom America in Silicon Valley. As a leading facial recognition solutions provider in Japan, JCV is backed by internet investing giant SoftBank. The company also has a key technology alliance with SenseTime, the world's leading provider of facial recognition algorithm. As AI spreads across industries, facial recognition use cases are growing fast. But the providers must convince consumers that the data gathered in the process will not be used in any threatening ways. Schrabecker graciously took some of his time to walk us through how JCV is dealing with the challenges and opportunities in the industry. His company has already identified 35 use cases for facial recognition backed by artificial intelligence and 10 million potential customers in Japan. Revenue is more than 60 million after raising 25 million to start the company three years ago. Rapid growth hasn't always been assured. Big competitors loom, and some consumers still need to be persuaded that the technology is safe enough to be used everywhere, from banks to convenience stores, taxi, government offices, and public spaces. JCV is navigating this partly by establishing a business model that has no need to mine customer data, Schrebacher says. The goal is to instead to make consumer experiences better without harvesting their data. Schrebecker spoke with us at JCV's showroom in Roppongi. Our technology, like we mentioned, is, is based on you know, enabling 
people to have a better consumer experience, right? We would like them to have a happier, happier consumer experience, you know, because, you know, their convenience of remembering, you know, what kind of, of order you had at the restaurant, you know, you could, if you go there with your family, you don't have to say, yes, I want, you know, uh, three yakisoba, one udon, you know, they can remember exactly the way you like your yakisoba, right? Yeah. So, so that, that, really benefits the consumer and what we what we got into when we started to deploy basic face recognition services is really the japanese government guidelines uh, was the first first thing we had to make sure that we were you know i think in, in, uh, in full compliance and softbank is our of course our parent company and they have their own internal <laughs> security guidelines and so we had to make sure we adhered to those, and those are even more strict, uh, I think, than the, the Japanese government. So, of course, that limited um, the type of, uh, of functionality we could offer. But what we found is that actually, um, our business model was not selling any of this information. It was not an advertising or, you know, insights driven into uh, advertising business. As we know, a lot of the technology today, like search engines or social networks, are completely monetized based on selling the information about the consumer. Yeah. That's not our model. So we didn't really encounter anything that was, um, uh, uh, I think, a privacy issue per se because of the goal we had. But we definitely encountered a lot of animosity and questions and concerns. To use your technology, businesses have to believe it's completely safe. What are you doing to convince them of that? Our idea with the company was that there was a that we had to draw our own line from day one. And that line is our ethical use policy. We have our ethical use policy that we put together in 2019 when we started the company. And the idea is we we would not use the technology in any way you know, that really infringed on human rights. Yeah, and, and so when it comes to, you know, these types of technologies putting people in jail, everybody starts to get really <laughs> nervous really, really quickly. So we've never we've never played in that space of, of you know, using this as kind of a security, security function. Mm-hmm. We've, we focused on making life better. And, you know, we found a couple areas that we could do that. One is, um, you know, with the pandemic, we found out that, that actually we were one of the first companies to, to put it together that we could use face recognition and this idea of uh, getting the IR image from an infrared camera. Yeah. And then we could align the face and the IR image with the face and the uh, camera image, the RGB camera, and we could infer the body temperature, the skin yeah. temperature. And we found we could eventually we had a solution that worked about as well as a skin thermometer <laughs> in terms of in terms of accuracy. And so we we launched that product in uh, 2020 in uh, in March. February, March. February, February, March. February. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and that that just was everywhere in Japan. We have literally, I think, 17,000 devices. We sold 11,000 locations. So that's become a huge use case. Mm-hmm. And then now we see, you know, we can we can walk around Tokyo Midtown here where we're sitting, and we can take you to three or four major retailers. Just with, we'll walk over there later, and you can see our technology in use. Now they're using it purely for you know, creating a safe environment for their customers and also in response to the Japanese uh, government guidelines on 
they want to take the body temperature and finish up. But for us, it, it presents an amazing, an amazing hospitality opportunity. Yeah. Because now we have actually a system where we can understand how many people are there, right? And we can understand how many people walk by, you know, the rate where they walk by, all these kinds of things that don't involve the identity at all. They're just really useful statistics about how many people are in my store, what are the busy times of the store, and then maybe if you can understand how many unique people came to the store because you have some kind of face recognition that works anonymously, then that gives you some really interesting information because now you understand how many people walked in. And then, of course, you have your point of sale data. You understand how many transactions you did. So how many people didn't buy when they were in the store? What was the abandonment rate? Those kinds of things. That's fascinating. That, that's, it's really uh, interesting. That's an interesting stat that each, yeah. every store would look at. Yeah, well, we, we think so, but we, we haven't been... Um, we haven't been convinced that they're interested in this specific data, but but the other other types of of, of um, solution that we've been looking at is to solve very basic problems. I I hate waiting in line. You probably hate waiting in line yeah. as well, right? So you know these types of solutions can can help you understand how long the line is. So at the I think we were in the airport in Miyazaki or somewhere in Japan, and we realized that, wow, there's this security line, and we don't know how long we're going to wait in the security line, and there's three security lines, and you pick the wrong line at 5 p.m., and you're trying to catch a 5.30 flight, man, you're going to miss your flight. So we thought that we could put the, the, how, long the how long the waiting time is approximately, because we understand this kind of flow information, and then it just it just makes, you know, living in public spaces like airports, <laughs> shopping malls, train stations, all these kinds of things, much, much easier. And that was like a big advantage of the technology. It doesn't involve, you know, identity or, or, or any of these, any of these um, uh, hot topics, shall we say, you know. So it's, it's those kind of solutions we've really been looking at. I want to make sure that the, our listeners understand this type of uh, the variety of technologies that you, you guys oh, work yeah. on. So. You mentioned AI and a thermographical yeah. face recognition, augmented reality. Yeah, so um, there's so many. What am I? Yeah, what am I missing here? Well, we have four <laughs> pillars to our our business. It's it's our our mission is to make the number one computer vision platform in Japan. Actually, we start with Japan. The idea is we've got four areas we're looking at computer vision being applied to. The first one is really access. And that, that's where we start. Can I open the door with my face? If I can use face recognition to open the door to my office, to my home, to my you know, uh, appointment, whatever it is, I don't need to carry the key card. You know, if I go to the elevator in the morning to hit the key card in the elevator and I have a Starbucks coffee in my hand, I don't spill it. You know, there's so many things that makes it very, very convenient. We can take you to some lobbies, I won't say the names of the companies, where they have 20,000 plus employees using our face recognition system with hundreds of our face recognition devices for building access and nobody needs a key card, right? And so that's a great use case. We think there's a big value there. The, the second platform we created is about identity. And this was to have a large scale face recognition system that we could use for platforms like payment platforms. So doing payments with your face. And this system is also used so you can uh, sign into your Gmail account or your uh, salesforce.com, whatever kind of 
enterprise software you're using, you can use face recognition as an authentication factor. And then you can sign in and you don't have to remember the password. Yeah. So we're thinking, look, instead of having a forgot password button, we can have a, oh, I forgot my face. <laughs> you don't forget your face. So it's very, very easy to, to use the identity platform to log in. The, the third platform was around how we can produce analytics from video. And so it's about video analytics. And you can see here in our demo lab, we have, we have a shelf and the shelf has got a bunch of retail you know, apparel products on it. And then the people who are standing in front of the shelf, we understand uh, the basic demographic information, how many people there were, the time of day, you know, all this kind of thing. And if we, we, they pick a product up off the shelf, well, we have an RFID system there and we can, you can understand uh, the RFID event, which, 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 which shirt did, did he or she pick right. up. And then we don't know the identity, but we know the demographic of the person interested in the product. So it was about the video analytics. And the fourth platform, it's very new is around AR. And AR is using computer vision to uh, basically modify uh, the real image uh, that we see with the camera. And so one example is virtual try-on. When you order shoes on Amazon, uh, maybe you order a pair of shoes on Amazon, like uh, this pair of, uh, I won't say the brand, uh, but, <laughs> but if, no, you put these if you buy these shoes, they're blue, they're blue sneakers, and you get them in the box on Amazon, you put them on your feet, they're like, well, I really don't like the way they look on my feet. Right. So with AR, we can create kind of a, a shoe lens, if you will. And so you can see how the product would look on your feet right there with the front. We can show you this, obviously it's hard to hear on the, yeah. on the audio format, but this type of virtual try-on we think will be big in e-commerce. Mm. And so that's been the main major use cases. And there's also, uh, using uh, you may have used Google Maps uh, to yeah, to yeah. do the virtual the, the AR navigation. That's really useful for uh, shopping malls and train stations like Tokyo Station, places like that that are hard to navigate with the GPS. And so computer vision comes in there to do the visual positioning system. So we have one of those as well. So it's a, it's four areas, and you can think of it really as a like an AWS, like a cloud computing platform, but instead of for IT infrastructure. It's all for computer vision. Mm -hmm. So our goal is to have a computer vision platform because I think that the future of computing is deviceless. Mm -hmm. You don't need a device anymore if you can interact with systems using computer vision, using face recognition. You can leave your house without your smartphone, without your wallet, without your cash, without your keys. And I, you know, you can do everything you need to do. So that's what we're thinking is really the next platform here. Well, that, that, that's, that's exactly to your point. That, that's convenience for people. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there's a trade-off, I guess, suppose, right? You've got to be willing to, you know, give your, who you are, identity. It's, it's part of the experience as well. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But, and, but you don't need to give your specific identity. And, and what, we've, what we've found, actually, with all of these technologies, you know, if you think about the first personal computer, I'm old enough to have had a personal computer when I was a kid. Um, but when you had a personal computer, you didn't really have to give your full identity when you started using it. In fact, for, for 20 years, the internet was basically anonymous, you know, until mobile kicked in and people started signing into Facebook. And yeah, you're right. The, the, identity. The, the, switch, the switch button yeah. was all the security was. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. 
And then that's when things like e-commerce became possible because you really understood the, the person who was buying the product, you know, in a, in a much deeper way. Uh, so you didn't have the fraud. But, but what we found is that all of these technology shifts introduced a new level of convenience. When I had the smartphone, I could put it in my pocket, take it wherever I can call the Uber. You know, I can sign into Uber with whatever. I can pay right there on my smartphone. And yeah. I'm, I'm telling Uber where I am, right? I'm telling them who I am. They know where to pick me up. They know where I'm going. But that is a trade-off. I'm trading privacy for convenience. And at least American consumers have done that at every possible opportunity they've been given. You mentioned uh, a soft bank. Is one of your people. You're one of our friends, yes. <laughs> How how big of a part does that play in your strategy and how um, what do you guys do? There's there there. So I mean, SoftBank in Japan is amazing. So I think people probably in, in the United States don't really understand SoftBank very well. SoftBank is like a. I always compare it to people who don't know to Berkshire Hathaway. People know Warren Buffett, right? Yeah. In, in the United States, they you know Masayoshi San in, in Japan, right? But they don't know that Warren Buffett owns Geico. And Geico is a big insurance company that generates all the cash, you know, the, a lot of the float that they can invest. And for Masayoshi-san, he has a telecommunications business here in Japan with, you know, 30, 40 million subscribers that, you know, generates a lot of free cash flow. And that's that's a big part of, of the, the investment strategy. So Motoshima and I work for Geico. We work for the we work for the telecommunications business here in Japan. And what we've been doing is really building businesses inside the telecommunications business that can use leverage the the various synergies offered, which are 400,000 business customers in Japan and Salesforce of 3,000 people and all kinds of amazing things. So SoftBank is very involved. They're they're an investor. You know, they're they're a, a fantastic sales partner, and and they're for us like a just an absolute unfair advantage, you know, for go- entering the market in Japan. We've been in business uh, about three years and we've acquired 4,000 customers in this market in three years, which is like light speed. And the second year of our business, we had acquired over 2,000 customers. And I don't think that would have been possible without without their support. Um, so they're, they're just a fantastic part of our our platform and our business, yeah, they're helping. So they're, they're a partner. We, we've identified in Japan 10 million business locations, 10 million that we can sell our solution into. And we have reference, we have use cases now of people in retail, manufacturing, offices, logistics, telecommunications, almost all the major sectors using our one of one or more of our products in a way that they're using together. I never thought when we started this company that it would really have been a platform model. It was only after about a year, I think, that we came up with the idea that it, it was a platform because it was such a, a widely applicable technology. So that's the first one. The second one that we really, I, I realized that I wish I'd known from day one is there is a technology called liveness verification. No face recognition system can be accurate if it cannot assert that the person standing in front of the camera 
is a real person and not a photograph or a movie of a person. And so in the beginning, uh, we were doing access systems for buildings. It was totally unacceptable to take a photograph of Paul Jones and take him to the building and walk right in, right? So, so we, um, and, and certainly for payment, if I, if I take a photograph off the internet of Richard Branson or somebody and I try and pay, you know, uh, you know at, a, at a restaurant, you know, that, that's just not going to work. So the, the idea of liveness verification, understanding how that technology can be developed and, and we probably would have, the first camera we would have had would have been purely designed around that. Um, how, we could, how we could sell that type. So we have various liveness verification. That was kind of the big problem which we'd solve from, from day one. So you've established a very solid presence in a very future-oriented business that's growing fast with a bunch of new and well-established players. When you look at the industry and the landscape, what's your biggest concern? Well, from, from 2003 to 2010, I was, I was in the cloud computing industry in, in the Bay Area. And I started a company doing cloud computing before there was com cloud computing. And Jeff Bezos started in 2006. And I, I saw what happened <laughs> after three years, I, I sold the company. So, so being run out of a business by Amazon, I'm, I'm, very, I, I'm very cognizant of Amazon. Uh, so... You know, they, they definitely keep me up at night. What's going on over there? Um, I don't know. So I'll say that. that, that that's the one thing that worries me uh, is, is what yeah. Jeff Bezos would do. And now, now having been in Japan, um, I, would, I would definitely start more companies here in Tokyo. I mean, it's amazing the kind of people you can find. They're amazing people. And, and the quality is so good, and, and it's a great place to live, especially Tokyo is fantastic. Everybody loves it. Um, but there's great resources here, amazing human resources. And in the Silicon Valley, you can't find people to do anything. You know, it's so hard to hire. It's become harder out here, yeah. It's so hard. Yeah, and, and you're competing with Google and Facebook yeah. and Apple, and, and they... They have, you know, just a, 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 a just a very very difficult cost model to compete with. There's no way. I mean, we could, we, you know, we could take our our, our, our we raised twenty five million dollars three years ago to start this company. We've acquired four thousand customers, and you know, we've done sixty million dollars in revenue cumulatively over those three years. So, try and do that in Silicon Valley. I don't think you can do it. It's too expensive. So Tokyo is much cheaper. There are many more resources, and uh, and we have amazing commercial partners here, like SoftBank, and and the nice thing also is that it's a it's a, it's one of these places where there's not so many people to know. Actually, it, you know, you can we we're, we are in, we can be in touch with anybody. It seems like the network has developed so quickly. But the U.S. is, is a great place too. So many brilliant people, and and uh, it's so competitive. And, and you know. So it's it's different different, but I, I really enjoy Japan. I hope I can do more 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 stuff like this here. Well, Andrew, I have a feeling you'll be doing a lot more stuff here, given the breadth and depth of Japan Computer Vision's offerings in an area where the potential for growth is so vast. Thank you very much for taking the time to offer your insights to our listeners. You're most welcome to return anytime, as I'm sure Japan Computer Vision will continue to make waves and surf them.
That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe, like, and share the podcast. Send any questions, comments, or suggestions to podcast at ignitus.ai. That's podcast at I-G-N-I-T-U-S dot A-I. Be sure to listen to our next episode featuring more news and interviews on human-centric A-I. Until then, keep on transforming.